Hello, this is Pastor Don from the Atlantic Evangelical Free Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can check us out on the web at AtlanticFreeChurch.com. In the meantime, I hope the sermon you're about to hear draws you closer to the Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening, and God bless you. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 2. We're going to be reading from Zephaniah chapter 2 and verses 4 through the end of the chapter. For Gaza has decreed, for Ashkelon shall become desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you inhabitants of the seacoast, your nations of the Cherishathites, the word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until no inhabitants is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be the pastures, the meadows for shepherds, and the folds for flocks. The seacoasts shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down in the evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and the resource of their fortunes and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they are taunted by my people and make boasts against the territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nations shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the the people of the Lord of the hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them. He will famish them. He will famish all the gods of the earth. And, And to him shall bow down, each in its place, in the lands of all the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste in the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, and all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in the capitals. A voice shall hoot in the the window. The devastation shall be on the threshold, for her cedar works will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that has said in her heart, I am, and there is no other. What a desolation she has become, a liar for wild beasts, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fists. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for, uh, for bringing us here this morning. We thank you for, uh, for Jesus, our Savior, his beauty, his glory, his, his power, his might, uh, the, 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 the humanity of our Lord and Savior, and yet at the same time, the transcendence that uh, he is God. We thank you, Father, for your, your love for us, for your power, for your omnipresence and omniscience, and so much more we could talk about. 
We thank you for your indwelling spirit who uh, empowers us and enlightens us uh, and uh, reveals uh, your will to us. Uh, And Lord, that's what we ask for now. Uh, We pray that by your spirit you would be working in us as we uh, study this passage together. I pray, Lord, that you would use me, a frail, uh, unworthy vessel apart from Christ, to be able to to take up the holy, uh, timeless word of God. But uh, thanks to Jesus, I can do that, and and we can do that. We can hear it together. And so we pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of each one of our hearts, would be pleasing to you. And it's in the name of Jesus, our great Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, it felt like a terrible injustice. Uh, Looking back now, it really wasn't. But at the time, it felt like a terrible injustice. I was in fifth grade. It was science class. Our teacher's name was Mr. Martin, and uh, we had taken a quiz uh, the day before, and Mr. Martin had graded our papers. He'd given them back to us, and like you do, now we were going to go over the papers in class, this quiz, and see how everybody did. I got one wrong. I I got one of the questions wrong on this quiz. I I got the other ones right, but I got one wrong. Uh, But uh, here's the thing. I was pretty sure that one was right too. Uh, I was pretty sure I had the right answer. And uh, at this point, I'm going to apologize. Uh, I was that guy. Uh, I was the guy who uh, would argue about the one he got wrong rather than being glad for the ones he got right. As you can imagine, this made me very popular uh, with the other students. (laughs) But uh, yeah, that was me. That was 10-year-old, 11-year-old me. And so going through this quiz, we got to the question that I got wrong. I raised my hand. Mr. Martin, I said, uh, I have the right answer. Uh, The uh, answer I put is what the book says I should get credit for this answer. And uh, at that point, my good friend Grant chimed in, and uh, Grant had done the same thing I had. He had put the same answer I put. His was also marked wrong. And and so for the next uh, minute or so, it really helped that there were two of us, Grant and I kind of made our case to Mr. Martin that we ought to get credit for the answer we put on the quiz. Now, he was kind of a no-nonsense kind of guy. He was a good teacher, and uh, he didn't want to hear it. He he really didn't want to hear our nonsense. But then uh, something amazing happened for us fifth graders. He gave in. He actually listened to us. I don't know, maybe he just wanted to shut us up. But whatever his reason was, he told me and Grant in front of the whole class that uh, we could have credit. We could mark it right, come see him afterwards. He'd make sure we got the credit on the quiz for the answer we put. Now, at that point, a whole bunch of other hands went up. lots of other students. Uh, My classmates had done the same thing. They'd put the same answer we put. After all, that was what the book said. And so uh, all these hands shot up in the air. Mr. Martin, Mr. Martin, I did the same. Me too, me too. Uh, We want credit too. And Mr. Martin said, too bad. Too bad. The rest of you didn't speak up, he said, and so you don't get credit on the quiz. You didn't defend yourself, so you don't get the credit. My classmates were so mad. They were so mad. When when the class ended, uh, just a few minutes later, a mob of angry fifth graders poured out into the hallway, and they were were using words fifth graders shouldn't know, and they were mad at at Mr. Martin, and they were mad at me. They were mad at Grant, just kind of collateral damage, I guess, because we were in the way. Because this felt to them like such an injustice. They had the right answer, too. They ought to get credit. They deserved the same credit he and I were going to get. We all learned a lesson that day, and the lesson is that sometimes life is unjust. 
Life is not just sometimes. And, you know, sometimes it's just the little things like that. That really was a little thing. It felt important at the time, but in the big scheme of things, that quiz really didn't matter. In fact, I can't remember for the life of me what it was, what it was about, right? It really didn't matter. And that's how it is with so many of the injustices we experience in the world. They're just little things. Right? Somebody cuts you off at the intersection, or, or you, you, know, you buy something at the store, you take it out of the discount bin, you get to the cashier, she charges you full price, and you don't realize it until you get home, and you're like, I would have never bought that, you know, if it was full price, and now you're stuck with it. Or you're watching a football game, and your, your favorite team's playing, and, and they call a penalty on your guy, and you know there's no penalty. Look, there's no penalty. You never touched him. You know, and, 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 and yet the, the play stands, the call stands, and 15 yards on your guy and that kind of thing. And the world's just filled with that kind of stuff. You know what I mean. All those little injustices in the world. The real problem, though, is the big ones. That's the real problem. It was just, if it was just the little ones, we could live with that. We, we can handle the, the missed call and the, the discount that's not given and that kind of stuff. But, but the problem that really troubles our souls is the big injustices. Oppression violence, murder, genocide still going on in the world today. Even now, there's a genocide going on in China against the Uyghurs. There's stuff going on in Nigeria. Uh, racism, uh, poverty, uh, sexual abuse, violent, other kinds of abuse, human trafficking, uh, prejudice of so many kinds. I mentioned racism, but that's just one. There's sexism and ageism and elitism and all this kind of stuff. There's so many ways big ways, troubling ways that, the, that injustice manifests itself in the world. We're studying Zephaniah this month. We're taking four weeks to work with this little prophet called Zephaniah. And we're asking the same question I believe Zephaniah was asking, which is, what's a believer to do? What is a believer to do? How should we live when we live in a world like this? And today, we're going to take that question. Last week, we looked at repentance and sin. That's the first chapter. This morning, we're going to apply our question to the problem of injustice. How should we live in, when we live in a world that is filled with injustice? And the answer we get in Zephaniah chapter 2 is that we are to rest in the Lord's righteous judgment. That's what a believer does. We rest in the righteous judgment of the Lord. Uh, we're going to look at uh, Zephaniah chapter 2 this morning, the text that was read for us a few minutes ago. And as we look at these verses, I want to show you three aspects of the Lord's righteous judgment. There are three things we learn about God's righteous judgment in these verses. And really what these are, these are the why. These three things are the why we can do what, what I'm saying this morning. This is why we can rest in the Lord's judgment. And I want to say at the beginning, I'll say it again at the end, this does not mean we ignore those injustices. That's not what this is about. We do not ignore those things. The Bible certainly doesn't say that. But it does say that ultimately, ultimately we rest in his judgment. He's the judge, we're not. And so when we see these things, we, we, we are salt and light. We take our faith seriously. We do all that. We stand against these things. We fight against these things. But ultimately we rest. We rest in the Lord's judgment. So let's open our Bibles, if you didn't before, or an app or whatever you use to have the word in front of you, and let's look together at Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, which is where we, we left off last week. <clears throat> so three aspects. Number one, we start with the object of the Lord's righteous judgment. And the object, so who does the Lord bring his righteous judgment to bear upon? Upon whom does he judge? And the answer is that he judges all nations with no exception. The object of his righteous judgment is all the nations 
no exceptions. All the nations of the world answer to the Lord. I mentioned last week that I, I wanted to say a little more this morning about Zephaniah the man. And so we talked about Zephaniah the book. I tried to situate it in its context. Let's talk just for a minute or two about Zephaniah the man. And it will only take that. It won't take a long time to talk about the man because we don't know very much. Uh, most of what we know comes from one verse. Uh, it's the first verse of the book. And so I'll just uh, flip back a page probably to chapter one and just look at verse one again. This is Zephaniah the man. Uh, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, uh, Cushi yeah, probably Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So the main thing we know about Zephaniah the man is his relatives. We know who he's related to. Verse 1 tells us uh, who his family was. Actually, four generations back. It goes back four generations uh, the most notable name on that list, and the reason I think we're probably given it, is uh, Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the most notable name. Uh, Zephaniah's great-great-grandfather was a man named Hezekiah. And the text doesn't specify that it was King Hezekiah, but it was probably King Hezekiah. A lot of, most scholars, most interpreters are going to take it that way. It was a common enough name, but there was a king in Israel named Hezekiah that would have been his the time would fall right into place. And so Zephaniah was the great-great-grandson of one of Israel's kings, one of Israel's better kings. And that's really who Hezekiah was. He wasn't perfect. He kind of made kind of a big mistake at the end of his life, not a disqualifying one, but he wasn't perfect by any stretch. But, but he, was, he was definitely one of Judah's better kings, one of the better kings of Israel. <clears throat> and that was Zephaniah's ancestor. The other thing we know about him from verse 1 is when he lived. And, and when he lived was during the reign of Josiah. You see that there at the end of verse 1 there in chapter 1. Uh, and we, So that really helps us date this book. Uh, King Josiah ruled from uh, 640 to 609. He was one of the last, although there's a bunch of really short reigns. He was one of the last major kings of the southern kingdom, King Josiah. He ruled for about 30 years. And he was also a good king. He was actually a reformer, um, probably after Zephaniah was written. He actually led a series of religious reforms. It was kind of the last great revival in Israel before she just fully, in Judah, the kingdom of Judah, before she just fully gave in to sin and God judged her. And so Josiah was a good king, and that's when, um, that's when, just, when, uh, when Zephaniah lived. Uh, there was lots of sin going on, but at least the ruler was a pretty good guy, right? That was Josiah. Now, you kind of look at that, you say, but so what, right? These, these, these couple of historical details, I mean, who cares who his family was? Why does that matter to us today? Uh, but actually, it's quite important. And the reason it's important is that it, what it does is it emphasizes the historical reality of this entire prophecy. It anchors it in history. These words, this book of Zephaniah is anchored in history. We know when these things happened. We know the nations that we're going to look at this morning. We, we know who, was in who were in charge of them and, and that sort of thing. And so what it does is it, it situates the truth of God and this prophecy in, in particular in, in history. Right? That's the context of God's judgment. Uh, if you caught last week's sermon, you'll remember that when we looked at the, the book opens with what I called universal judgment. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, I will sweep it all away, God says. And I talked last week about how that should be understood at two levels. Uh, we talk about God's universal judgment at the end of the age. Uh, you know, when Jesus comes back, all the nations will be judged. 
But then we also talk about universal judgment in history. God judges nations. He doesn't wait till the end of all things. He actually does it now. He judges nations in history. And that's why it's, it, this, it's so significant. It's important that this is in history. He judges nations in history. And, and that sets us up for this morning's text, for verses 4 through 15, because these are all about the Lord's judgment in history. Everything you read in this chapter is already done. It's one of those prophecies that was already fulfilled, actually fulfilled just within decades of when, uh, when, the, when God gave this prophecy to Zephaniah. And so it's, it's about the Lord's judgment in history. <clears throat> now, as you look at this passage, there's lots of names, not people names, but place names, lots of place names in verses 4 through 15. And uh, it's actually a little disorienting, right? When you read through it the first time, you're like, Who, who's what, where, where are these places? Are they all names, different names for the same place? Or you know, what is all this? What are all these names? Some of them you recognize, Gaza, right? There's still a Gaza today, but these other places, Ekron, what's an Ekron, you know, what it was. So, so it's, it's a little confusing, a little disorienting when you see all those names. And I'm going to give you a little Bible study tip here. Uh, when you see the names of places in the Bible, one of the best ways to make sense of it and understand why they're there is to get out a map. Right? Seriously, I mean, we don't always think, to, it seems obvious, but we don't always think to do it. But there's a reason for those specific places. And, and so uh, we're going to do that this morning. I'm actually going to put a map up here. And I had to hunt around a little bit for one that didn't have anything labeled because I'm going to add my own labels just to, to emphasize what the text emphasizes. So that's the ancient, or the Middle East. That's the Middle East. <clears throat> the red star you see on that map is uh, the kingdom of Judah, the little kingdom of Judah. So this is where Zephaniah lives. This is the people he's talking to. Jerusalem's there. It's just east of the Dead Sea, basically. I don't even know how well you could see it on that because it's so small. But uh, that's, that's the region where we're going to start with. So everything is being written from the point of view of that little red star. And the reason that matters, the, way, the reason this map is going to help us make sense is that when you, when you start looking at these place names on the map, you realize God has a message here, and the message is, I judge all the nations. Because what he's going to do is he's going to take us through the four points of the compass. He's going to take us through, in order, uh, the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west, although he's going to take them in reverse order. He's going to start with west and finish with north. So let, let me show you what I mean. <clears throat> so he starts with the west, and that's verses 4 through 7. And here, let me just put it up on the map there. Uh, every place I'm about to read to you is in that blue box. Uh, and, and most of them are actually in the far right of the blue box on the coastal part. A lot of my box is, spills over into the Mediterranean. But, uh, but everything you read there is verses, in verses 4 through 7 is in that blue box. So... <clears throat> Excuse me. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you, you nation of Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. These are all about the Philistines. Everything I just read, there, there's like eight different place names in there, including the, this description, the seacoast, and they're all 
ways to describe, they're all Philistine cities or ways to describe the ancient Philistines. Now, you've, you've heard of the Philistines. We've heard of the Philistines. If you read the, through the Old Testament, you know, that's who David was always fighting. Goliath, our friend who's up in the hallway, still out there. Uh, Goliath was a Philistine. Uh, not so much a friend, I suppose, but Goliath was a Philistine. And, and that's who verses 4 through 7 is about. It's the Philistines. And the Philistines were a coastal people. You don't always get that when you're reading the, the Israelites' historical books, the, the, the history books in the Old Testament. Uh, the Israelites weren't really a seafaring people, and so the Bible doesn't pay a lot of attention to that. But the Philistines, are, they were traders. They were they, uh, they, a lot of commer- uh, seafarers. They were seafarers, commercial uh, enterprise by ocean kind of thing. And so that's why those, that, those verses are talking about coastal peoples, uh, the cities you see in verse 4, those are all cities, and they're actually in order from south to north, working from south to north, uh, Gaza, you can actually look at it on a map that has, I'm not going to even try to put place names on this map, for it'll be too small to see, but uh, Gaza, and then north of that was Ashkelon, north of that was Ashdod, and they were all right there along the coast. And so the point of, of that first section there, verses 4 through 7, is that the Lord judges the west, Right? If you think about it on, in terms of compass points, Israel's there, and he, is, he tells them, I will judge those nations to the west of you. That's verses 4 through 7. It then moves to the opposite side. In, uh, in the next section, verses 8 through 11, the Lord also judges the nations to the east. And I'm actually going to hold on reading those. I want to read those verses in a few minutes because they help us understand a, a later point better. But if you just kind of look at them in your Bible, you see they focus on two nations. So it's not eight place names, it's just two, uh, Moab and Ammon. And Moab and Ammon were two of Israel's most more ancient enemies. They were actually kind of historically related, cousins of a sort, uh, but they were Israel's enemies by this point in history. And, and Zephaniah says the Lord will judge them too. And so he'll judge to the west and he'll judge to the east. But that's not all. Uh, he also judges to the south. He's going to judge the south. And that's verse 12. There's only one verse for verse 12, interestingly. Uh, yellow doesn't show up so well there, but it's the yellow, if you can see it. Uh, verse 12, You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. So Cush, so what's Cush? Uh, Cush was south of Egypt, and it's really associated with modern-day Ethiopia. So when you see Cush in the Bible, think Ethiopia, except it was much more powerful than modern-day Ethiopia. Ethiopia is really not a very powerful nation now. It's kind of important because of its geography, but it's not really an important, powerful nation today. But if you go back 2,500 years, 3,000 years, Ethiopia at different times was pretty powerful, actually. Cush was powerful. and Actually, there was always kind of this struggle between Cush and Egypt for who was the more powerful nation, uh, empire, people in, uh, in, in North Africa. Usually it was the Egyptians, but sometimes it was the Cushites. And this was one of those periods. The Egyptians actually were pretty much controlled by the Assyrians. We'll get to them in a minute. But Cush was still this independent power. And so the Lord grabs Cush there in verse 12. And, and Cush was an enemy against Israel as well. And he says, I will slay them. I will judge them. So he judges to the west. He judges to the east. He judges to the south. Uh, finally, the fourth direction is north. And that's what you get in verses 13 through 15. I'll just read verse 13 for now. Uh, and here's where he emphasizes the, the compass point. Uh, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. 
Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Nineveh was a city. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Um, if you let me put my map up, um, if you if you look at this map up here, um, Assyria was to the the north northeast of of Judah, of Israel. Actually, their influence was much bigger than that red box that I put on the map, but that map just kind of shows you uh, the heart of their power, uh, or just generally where it would have been. And map isn't necessarily to scale there, but, uh, but Assyria was to the north, and they'd been a problem for the Israelites for centuries, the, the Assyrians had. And when they would invade, they would always come from the north. You don't come from the east because you have to cross desert. The Assyrians would come from the north, and so they were a, a, the power to the north uh, that was threatening Israel. And the Lord says in verses 13 through 15, I judge them too. I judge uh, Assyria as well. And, and this is significant, and I think it's, it's on purpose that God saves the north for last. Uh, Assyria was the most powerful nation. When, when Zephaniah, when God gives this prophecy to Zephaniah and he writes it down and he proclaims it to the people of Judah, Assyria was the most powerful nation in the world, which means, get the message there in that verse, uh, in those verses, even the most powerful nations in the world are accountable to the Lord. They are accountable to him. It's not like it's only kind of the lesser powers. No, his righteous judgment extends to all the nations, to all four points of the compass with no exceptions. And God, in, in this kind of a prophecy, and you, you've, you've ever tried to read through the prophets, you know there's a lot of these kinds of you know, judgment against the nations passages and Jeremiah and Obadiah and Isaiah has them and lots of others. And, and the point, one of the points of these sorts of passages is the Lord is saying, rest in my judgment. Trust in me. We are to rest in the promise of his universal judgment. Yes, we look around and we see lots of wickedness on the, on the international stage and lots of, of, of global kind of wickedness, but they will be held to account. The wicked nations of the earth will answer to the Lord, not only on judgment day, which is also true, but even before that, God holds nations accountable within history. The dictators will fall. The regimes will collapse. The empires will crumble. If you even just think about 20th century history, how, how often we saw that. There are some nations we still wait to see wicked regimes fall, but, but so many of them have fallen already. You think of the, you know, the atheistic Soviet Union and how that, that, the Lord, I believe providentially, God took them out. It's, you know, you think of Nazi Germany. You, you see even today the way countries like Venezuela or Cuba, where those, the people are good people, but the governments are wicked and, and where they, they are finally starting to crumble. The Lord judges in history. He judges nations. And again, it's not because of some vague notion of good triumphs over evil. Sometimes we, we act as if this is some sort of... Um, uh, uh, some sort of detached principle, each kind of good triumphs over evil. Well, no, God triumphs over evil. That's the, what the scriptures say. The sovereign Lord righteously judges all the nations of the earth, including our own. I think we have to acknowledge that, including our own. Now, the United States of America is not unique on this point. And this is where it gets a little more personal. We stop thinking about godless China and we start to think maybe about godless America because the same rules apply to us as, as apply to all the nations through history. Uh, if we are a righteous people, the Lord will bless us. If we are a wicked people, the Lord will judge us. And that's not unpatriotic. That's biblical. That's a biblical thing to acknowledge. So, so if you need another reason to pray for your country, 
If you need another reason to pray for your country, this is a big one right here. Uh, pray for, for America. Pray for the United States that we will turn from our sins so that we'll escape what this book talks to us about. So we'll escape the Lord's judgment. Let's move on now to the purpose, uh, the purpose of the Lord's righteous judgment. And, and the purpose of his judgment is, is really twofold as we look at this. Uh, there's two things he's doing. And, and the words I want to give you are vindication and punishment. The purpose of God's righteous judgment is the vindication of his own people and the punishment of the wicked. He punishes the wicked. And uh, that's a, another focus here. The Lord pours out his judgment on the nations in, of the wicked nations in order to, to punish them for their sin. And at the same time, you'll see this. I'll show you two places where it's really clear. Uh, he, he vindicates. In his judgment, he vindicates his own faithful people. And he uses this term, the remnant. Just kind of put a pin in the, in the term, the remnant. We're going to come back to it two weeks from now and, and talk about that, that, his faithful people. But that's what he does. He vindicates his faithful people. So the punishment part... Is, is everywhere. It's all over the place in these verses. Uh, Gaza shall be deserted. You know, not just kind of experience a 5% decline in population, but deserted. That's what happened to ancient Gaza. People live there now, but although it's still not in great shape, but Gaza shall be deserted. Uh, Ashdod's people driven out. Ekron uprooted. Uh, the Lord will destroy Canaan. He slays by the sword. He, he turns cities into desert later in the chapter. And, and so you kind of get the picture. The, the punishment of sin runs through the whole thing. Uh, the best place to see the combination, though, uh, the combination of, of punishment and vindication, how these two work together, is uh, it's actually the passage with Moab and Ammon. And, and that's, the re that's, that's the one that emphasizes it the most, the, the two powers to the east. So, so let me just read those to you again. God is speaking. He says, I have heard the taunts of Moab, picking up in verse 8, and the revilings of the Ammonites, <clears throat> how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations." Again, the, the punishment part is clear enough. The Lord, he says, is going to turn Moab and Ammon into a barren waste. How barren will it be? Think Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? If you remember that story from, from the book of Genesis, a land of nettles and salt pits, it says. And if you visit the Dead Sea area today, it's still a land of nettles and salt pits. I mean, it's a geographical feature, and they don't know exactly where Sodom and Gomorrah was, were, but wherever they were, the whole area is, is a barren wasteland. Uh, it's desolate, it's empty, and there's a certain prettiness to it. It's kind of uh, lovely in a way, uh, but in that stark way, you know, like a Death Valley kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's hot, there's no water, nothing grows there. That's the picture God gives for the judgment he pours, he was going to pour out and did pour out on Moab and Ammon. They were both actually conquered by the Babylonians not too much longer later, not, not, not too much later. And so there's the, the punishment part. But then look at the reason. Why is he doing this? Why does he do this to those, to those two nations? Well, it's because he has heard 
how they've been treating his people. He's seen how they've treated his people. They've, they've taunted my people, he says. They've hated my people. This is all verse 8. They've boasted against my people. Therefore, I'm going to judge them, God says. Verses 10 and 11. I will be awesome against them, right? We, we like to think of how awesome God is. We used to, you know, a few decades ago, our God is an awesome God. It was a fun song to sing, right? We, we think of God's awesomeness as this cool thing. It is if you worship him but you don't want to be on the wrong end of his awesomeness. That's what he was going to to do to those nations. I will be awesome against them, he says. Why? Because of how they treated my people. That's the vindication part. That's with Moab and Ammon. You also see it in the previous verses with the Philistines. It's it's there in verses 6 and 7. And basically what he says in verses 6 and 7 is, when I judge the Philistines for their wickedness and they're attacking my people, I'm going to take all their stuff and I'm going to give it to my people. It's it's almost like Robin Hood, only better. I'm going to take from the wicked and I'm going to give to the righteous, he says. And so he talks about how the the farmland, the coastal, nice uh, fertile coastal territory of the Philistines, God says the Israelites are going to graze their sheep there and they're going to live in the Philistines' houses. I'm going to give my people, the remnant of my people, the ones who are faithful, the others are going to be judged. We have to look at that when we get into chapter 3. But, um, but those who are faithful, he will, he will reward them. He will vindicate them. And so there's this promise of in, in the judgment, God's people will be vindicated. And, and it ends up being very practical as we kind of fast forward to the modern times, and, but, but it applied to believers ever since then. Uh, it's practical because when believers are persecuted, we have this promise that the Lord will defend us, that he will vindicate us, maybe in this world and certainly in the world to come, but he will vindicate his people. He will punish the wicked and he will vindicate his people. He will vindicate believers. Uh, that, that really kind of becomes this, it does become this source of, of comfort when we look at some of the, the things, when we hear about um, persecution in other places. Like, I, I wish I'd written down the numbers. I should have paid more attention, but I was looking at a story just yesterday about persecution in Nigeria. Uh, thousands of believers have been um, murdered, martyred, really, uh, in, in, in Nigeria over the last decade. Uh, churches burned, pastors uh, taken away um, and, and killed. Uh, those believers, those brothers and sisters in that nation will be vindicated. They will. The Lord will vindicate them. When we see, see things happening here in the United States, not to that extent uh, for, for sure, but when you hear about, I, I think of that, the, the baker in Colorado. Many of you will know this story. I don't want to give the whole case, but the, uh, Jack Phillips, the baker in Colorado who uh, doesn't want to bake cakes for, um, for uh, weddings that he believes are, violate the scriptures, right? It's a religious conscious issue. And he's, he's really been persecuted at this point. The man's been sued so many times, uh, it, it starts to make your head hurt. He's being persecuted. The Lord will vindicate him. I don't know if he'll vindicate him through the courts, but the Lord will vindicate his faithful people. This principle also helps us do some of the hard things Jesus tells us to do. Right? So this is, this is uh, you know, like the wind beneath our wings for some of the hard things Jesus says. Uh, you think of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, this is why we can turn the other cheek. Jesus doesn't emphasize it too much in the Sermon on the Mount, but the reason we can turn the other cheek is that we know vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Right? The reason we can bless those who, cur- who curse us and can love our enemies, we do these things because we know the Lord will either those people will repent of what they've done to us and they'll become our brothers and sisters or the Lord will 
judge them, his righteous judgment. And so when we do that, when we turn the other cheek, we're not being pushovers, we're trusting in the righteous judgment and vindication of the Lord. And so, and so we don't have to get mad, right? We don't have to go on Twitter and rage and rant and all the rest of it. Instead, we simply rest in the promise of the Lord's righteous judgment. Finally, the, the third aspect of the Lord's righteous judgment that we see in this text has to do with the extent of it, the extent of his righteous judgment. And what you see in this text is that it's complete and comprehensive. It's complete and comprehensive. Your God, our God, is not a God of half measures. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He gives sinful people and sinful nations an abundance of time to repent. He's oh so patient. But when his patience runs out, his judgment of sin is complete and comprehensive. He, He doesn't pull his punches. He doesn't hold anything back. And again, this theme is going to run through the whole passage. Uh, The Philistine cities will be deserted, not just depopulated or underpopulated, but deserted. Moab and Ammon, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? I mean, the the picture uh, from the Bible of ultimate and complete destruction. The Cushites will be slain. Uh, These are all pictures of, of total judgment. But really where you see it the best, those are just uh, individual statements, uh, where you see this emphasis on the completeness of God's judgment, uh, where you see it the best is with the Assyrians. Uh, those last three verses, verses 13 through 15. Let me read those verses again. Verse 13, And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window, devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid, will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, talking about Nineveh, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. Oh, what a desolation she's become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses, and shakes his fist. Nineveh, God says through Zephaniah, will be destroyed. It'll become a, a, a just this very graphic kind of picturesque language in a bad way. Uh, it'll become a dry waste, like a desert. Nineveh was actually, it straddled uh, one of the rivers. I can't remember if it's the Tigris or the Euphrates, but it actually straddled the river. It was very green and lovely. But no, it's going to become a dry waste, God says. Uh, A field. I'm going to turn it into a field where animals graze. Uh, A ghost town where the only citizens are owls and hedgehogs. Uh, Owls are are solitary animals, right? They're not like pigeons that'll walk right up to you and beg for crackers. Owls are solitary animals. That's how desolate uh, Nineveh will become. Owls will live there, and their hoots are what you'll hear. Uh, It'll be a ruin where all the buildings have collapsed. That's the significance of the cedar. The comment about the cedar will be exposed. The idea is the buildings have collapsed, and so now you can see the cedar that was the foundations underneath that the beams were built of and and all the rest. That's what I'm going to do, God says to Nineveh. Now, when Zephaniah wrote these words, when Zephaniah wrote this prophecy down, Nineveh was one of the most powerful cities in the world. It it was the the New York, the Tokyo, whatever city, London, whatever. It was one of the most powerful cities in the world. And uh, it it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians, I think I mentioned this last week, they they were on the the downward fall. This was actually the last few decades of the Syrian empire, but they were still really powerful. 
They were still the most powerful nation, the greatest power in the world. And Nineveh was her greatest city. That, that's Nineveh. Zephaniah is written, we're going to call it 630. There's a little bit of a window, but we're going to call it 630 B.C., Less than 20 years later, in the year 612, the Babylonian Empire, who was on the upswing at this point in history, laid siege to Nineveh. And they actually had really good reasons for it. The Assyrians had been harassing Babylon for centuries, and the Babylonians finally grew strong enough to say, okay, here we come. And so the Babylonians laid siege to Nineveh, and uh, it took a few months, I think it was three months, to fall, but fall it did. And when Nineveh fell, the Babylonians broke through the walls and they destroyed the city. They looted it, took all the wealth out, and then they burned the city to the ground. And that was it for ancient Nineveh. They, they didn't rebuild it. That was the last time anybody lived in Nineveh for more than 2,500 years. There's actually people there living today. It's modern-day Mosul in Iraq is built on the site of the basic location of ancient Nineveh. Uh, But for 2,500 years, nobody lived there. In fact, the city was so destroyed, human beings actually lost track of it. Uh, It wasn't until 1840, the 1840s, that archaeologists identified this set of ruins and said, this is ancient Nineveh that you read about in, in ancient history. This is Nineveh. 1846, I think it was, is when they finally identified it. But that makes it sound like it took a long time. It didn't take a long time. In, it, it, was, it was erased. Nineveh was erased from history way before that. There's an interesting thing from history. I find it interesting. I hope you will. I want to share it with you. Um, in the year 400 BC, so 200 years after the Babylonians destroyed Nineveh, which isn't very long in ancient history, uh, the Babylonians destroyed Nineveh. 200 years later, there was a Greek army. It was a Greek army, about 10,000 Greek soldiers, Uh, tried to invade Persia, and it went really bad. It was a bad idea. It didn't work very well. They got deep into the Persian Empire, and then they they lost the battle, and they, they retreated. And the reason we know about this is because the retreat is actually really famous. Uh, The retreat is called the March of the 10,000, and it was written about by a guy named Xenophon. And Xenophon was one of the officers in this army, so he was an eyewitness to the whole thing, and he wrote a book afterwards chronicling the March of the 10,000. It was this really amazing, heroic thing. These 10,000 guys fought their way out. They were deep in enemy territory, fought their way out, really kind of cool, inspiring sort of stuff, if you like that kind of thing. And uh, they got home. They eventually got home to to Greece. One of the things Xenophon wrote about in that book was as they were retreating, they kind of made their way through the desert to try to avoid the Persian armies that were trying to catch them. Uh, As they were working their way through the desert, they came upon some ruins. And it was so, the ruins were so desolate, they didn't even realize at first what it was. They're kind of like, oh, what's that? What's that? And then as they kind of were passing through it, they realized, oh, this, I think this was a city. And they kind of, you know, looked around and they realized, I think this was a big city. What, what was this? And uh, I'm paraphrasing Xenophon here, but uh, they, they kind of took note of this and nobody knew what it was. They had no idea. They're, what is this? Why are these ruins here in the middle of nowhere? Nobody had any idea what it was. So they kind of wrote down a description. They stopped for lunch, that kind of thing. And then they just moved on, not even knowing what it was they were looking at. Modern day historians, many of them, think that that was Nineveh. Like kind of people have connected some dots, what we know today and from Xenophon's uh, chronicle. And the thought is, in 400 BC, this army of 10,000 men marched through the ruins of Nineveh, and they didn't even know what it was. They didn't even know what it was. The Lord wasn't kidding. 
right? Do you see the completeness and comprehensive of the judgment of God? He wasn't kidding when he said, I'm going to destroy Assyria and make Nineveh a desolation. That's what God's judgment, when he pours it out, thankfully he's a gracious and, and patient God, but when he pours out his judgment, his judgment is complete. Sometimes with uh, some of the injustices we see, uh, we can do something about them. Sometimes we can do something, and it is very clear from Scripture that we should do something. I don't want anybody to, to listen to what we've talked about today and kind of say, oh, well, we're just kind of do my thing, you know, don't worry about anything. That is not what the Bible says. Uh, you are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. You are the light of the world. Uh, James tells us faith without works is dead. Uh, and so uh, Jesus sends us into the world. There is no doubt about that to make the world better. And Christians, we should lead the way against the injustices we see. And through history, we have. And we should continue to do so until Jesus comes back. But even when we do all that, even when the Wilberforces stand against slavery and, uh, you know, right on down through history and even the modern injustices we stand against today, even when we do all that, there's still injustice. Wickedness still persists right up until the day Jesus comes back. And that can be discouraging, right? That's so frustrating. But what the Lord says to us in these kinds of passages is, trust me, rest in my righteous judgment. And so I want to say, you know, don't give in to despair on this. Some do. I, I, and I've, I've had conversations with people. I know this is a temptation. You know, we look at all the injustice in the world. It's just, I surrender, right? We give in to, to pessimism or cynicism or even nihilism. You know, nothing matters. It doesn't nothing. Don't give in to that. Instead, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Fight for, for justice where we can, and then trust him. He will punish the wicked and vindicate his people, and he'll do so completely in every nation without exception. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we are mindful this morning uh, as your people that you do call us to, to do right, to do good, to stand for justice, and uh, we don't take this passage as uh, some kind of an excuse to, to bail on that. We pray that you would help us uh, intangible, practical ways to stand against the evils of our own day. Uh, we also know, Lord, that these things persist until you come back. And so, uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us. You know, we mourn over these things that we see in the world, the persecutions of, of brothers and sisters, and persecution of anybody, quite honestly, is the, the violence and uh, the, the racism and the abortion and the the trafficking is, Lord, so much, so much wickedness. And we would ask you, Lord, to intervene. Uh, you are the Lord of hosts. You are the Lord of armies, angel armies. Uh, please act in your world, Lord. Uh, we long for the day when you come back and put an end to all those things. Uh, and in the meantime, help us to be your agents of peace and those who trust in you. And help us to rest in the promise of your righteous judgment. In Christ's name we ask all this. Amen.